teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. We know Jesus' words that uh, they will know we are Christians by... Our love, right? Now, passage is speaking specifically of our love for one another. But there's another text Jesus reminded us of. That is that the greatest commandment in all the universe and all the scriptures to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And there are various ways that we can express that love specifically. God is so kind and gracious to communicate through His Word how we can show that kind of love, how we can reach out and be the hand of God, how we can look and see with His eyes. And so this morning we wanted to give special attention to one area in which we can express that love. John David already mentioned it. It is Orphan Sunday this morning, and we want to give special attention to the orphans and widows and what God has to say about them and what God has to say to us regarding them. I mean, James one twenty seven could not be any more clear on God's concern for widows and orphans, right? This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our God and Father, to care, to visit the orphan and widow in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And that, when you think about it and look at the words in that text, it really is a shocking text. Because in it, James is saying, you want to know how real your religion is, how genuine your worship of God is, how true your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then demonstrate it by taking care of those who are in the greatest need. Caring for the widow and orphan isn't just something that we came across in the New Testament either, right? In fact, most of the instruction, most of uh, the verses that regard this issue are in the Old Testament. In fact, I think in the New Testament there's just one. James 1.27, God has shown all through history His care and concern for the widow. Uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, I want to look at one text briefly here. John David quoted already from Exodus 22.22, which said, You shall not afflict, that is, humiliate or oppress or harm any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. Then in Deuteronomy 24, several texts that Deuteronomy indicates where God speaks to this issue of the widow or orphan. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 17, says this, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. God repeats twice here. I am commanding you to do this because remember the condition you were in. And I want you to remember that and to provide for those who have needs. 
to not glean everything from your fields. Leave some for, for those, particularly the, the most poor, the most vulnerable in the culture. When you're gathering grapes, don't take them all, but leave some. When you are uh, taking the olives, again, leave some. And God declares here and in many, many other passages in the Old Testament, I think, what was it, 40-something roughly, that he talks about orphans and widows. And in many of those, he talks about things we're to do to provide for them. Not only are they not to be oppressed or taken advantage of, but they're to be cared for. We're all to take an active role in doing that. In fact, it's interesting, the uh, care for the orphan and widow was a basic demonstration of repentance in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Isaiah said this, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. It's interesting. Those were two specific things that God brings up through Isaiah that they were to do to show repentance. God has an individual, personal concern for those who are most vulnerable in our society. John David mentioned Psalm 68, 5. The father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Or Psalm 10, verse 14 says of God, You have been the helper of the orphan. And if you look in the Old Testament, that word orphan there is actually primarily used as a term for the fatherless. There's an emphasis on that. In fact, I think that's why it appears often with with widow, because that was a circumstance that normally occurred when the father was gone. You'd have a widow and an orphan, a fatherless child left. And in that culture, that was a most vulnerable position. The loss of a father meant that this mother and this child or children were now helpless. They were prime targets for being oppressed, taken advantage of. Others would would come in, unscrupulous men would come in and find ways to take their land from them and their home. In fact, what was it that Jesus said of the Pharisees? You devour widows' houses. The men who were supposed to be the religious leaders and the care and the shepherds of that culture, they were men who would go in and take advantage of single mothers, take from them. It's one of the main indictments against Israel was its poor treatment of orphans and widows. Isaiah 1, chapter 23, God says this, Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Or in Psalm 82, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of, of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Deuteronomy 27:19. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan and widow. And all the people shall say amen or I agree or this is what's right. God even set up a welfare system to care for the orphan and widow. I already mentioned in Deuteronomy 24 how they were to leave uh, food and, and grapes and, and things for the, the, the widow and orphan to glean. Deuteronomy 14:28 says this, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So every third year, people were to set aside a tenth of their produce and put it in their town. And that was to be a special uh, uh, repository for those who were deplored, those who were vulnerable, particularly the widow and the orphan, to come and to have food. 
God made provision for them because he knows that families without fathers are the most helpless. In fact, it's no different today, right? God's designed the family, the mother and father, and each having a specific role. And he's designed fathers to be those who would provide uh, the, uh, for the needs of the kids, provide for his wife. And he's made mothers to be those who would care for their home, to provide the nurture, the care, the security, the comfort. The father working and providing would free a woman to do that, free her up to do that. But when fathers are no longer in the home, the results are sobering, right? Many of you are aware of the statistics in our society of those from fatherless homes. Two-thirds of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Ninety percent of all runaway children come from homes that have no dad. Three-quarters of all adolescent patients in drug rehab are from fatherless homes. Two-thirds of youth suicides. Nearly nine in ten of all youth in prison are from homes with no father. Higher rates of unwanted pregnancy occur among young women from fatherless homes. 75%, in fact, of all teenage pregnancies. Can you see why God is so concerned for the fatherless? Can you see why He has such care and gives special attention to the widow and the orphan? And there are so many. Over 10 million homes in our country with a single mother. The poverty rate among single mothers is 40%, which is about five times that of married couple homes. Single mother families make up three quarters of homeless families in our country. UNICEF estimates that there are 120 million or so children in the world without a dad. 18 million of them have neither parent. Brothers and sisters, we we have a need here, don't we? And God, God would have us do something. God would have us take action. He would have us show concern. He would have us visit the widow and the orphan in their distress and in their need. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to take us to 1 Kings 17 and look at an example, actually a couple of examples in Scripture that would encourage and motivate us. I, I'm not interested here in, in pushing a guilt trip on you and you go out on drudgery and I, I need to do this, I feel so terrible. I want you to, to see how God's heart for those who are in need so that we would be motivated in that way and be encouraged to follow in the footsteps of our Father and His concern. 1 Kings 17 is a place where we find the people of Israel suffering through a drought. Actually, a drought through the word of Elijah, the prophet. And it's important to understand how they got to this point. Let's go back about 150 years. Last week I mentioned Saul at his coronation. That was about 150 years before 1 Kings 17. Saul became king. He blew it. He disobeyed the Lord. He rejected God as his God. And so God rejected him as his king. And then he brought whom to the throne? David, right? David reigned about 40 years. And following David came his son, Solomon. Good. Israel's history is good. All right, excellent. Solomon came. Now, Solomon is one of the greatest tragic ironies in history, right? He's known as what? The wisest man who ever lived, right? He became the greatest fool who ever lived and that he traded all of that. He traded his throne. He traded his wealth. He traded his fame. He traded his relationship with God for immorality. Gave it all up for his thousand wives and concubines. Greatest fool who ever lived. And as a result of that, the consequence for that was that the kingdom of Israel would be split in the reign of his son Rehoboam. That the ten northern tribes would break off from the two southern tribes to form two nations. 
And when you read through the book of Kings, whenever you see the, the word Israel, that's actually referring to those ten northern tribes. And Judah is referring to the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Well, that split, that, that revolt came about through a man named Jeroboam, who the scripture notes was actually also fatherless. And Jeroboam was a servant in Solomon's household. And he took advantage of an opportunity to bring about a rebellion and, and tear off the ten northern tribes to become their own nation. But the, see, the thing is, is that Jeroboam realized something. He was a very shrewd guy. He realized, you know, um, we have these feasts every year where the people of Israel, everyone gathers in Jerusalem, which is in where? Is it in the north or the south? It's in the south, right? So here he's got a problem. He's got, okay, if I get the people going down there a few times a year to worship in the temple in Jerusalem... They're going to start probably feeling allegiance more again and and want to recombine at some point. So I need to do something. I need to come up with our own religion. And so what he does is he takes the worship of God, the one true God, Yahweh, and he mixes it with his own uh, things as well. He adds in the golden calves. Yep, those guys again. He puts uh, two different places to worship, one in, I think it was uh, Samaria area and the other in northern, uh, further north. And so as a result of that, the northern tribes of Israel ended up in idol worship for the duration of their existence. And that became a problem, and essentially there was no good king through the entire uh, several hundred years of the northern tribes of Israel. As a result here, let's get up to where we're at in 1 Kings 17. So about 60 years transpires from Jeroboam to the time period we're at now with with, uh, the situation in 1 Kings 17. Chaos and evil reigned. Of the next five kings after Jeroboam, two of them were assassinated. One of them committed suicide, and another died during a civil war. And then a man named Omri, a military leader, came to power. And he was able to bring economic and military stability within the country. He's actually, his name is actually found in some extant Assyrian documents, giving him praise and honor for his ability to rule. But the problem is, even though he brought that stability to the land... They were morally or spiritually worse off. And it got even worse when his son came on the scene, a man by the name of Ahab. And let's pick it up in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. We're going to see exactly what takes place during his reign. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings who were before him. It did. It went from bad to worse with this guy. In fact, it was greater wickedness was experienced in Ahab's reign than any that Israel had seen up to that point. And a wickedness that was fueled by his marriage to a woman named Jezebel, right? Now, Jezebel actually was a princess. She was from the region of Sidon. Her father, Ethbaal, whose main, uh, name means uh, Baal is alive, his, uh, he was not only the king of that region, he was also a priest, a priest to Baal or, or Baal. 
So she came down to Israel, reigned with King Ahab. Baal, by the way, was a common god. We see a lot. There are many Baals or Baals in the Bible. Uh, This Baal in particular was a god of rain. He was thought by the people in that region to be one who brought rain and thus brought life. And when rain didn't come, they would often sacrifice even their old children to appease this god. It's a popular religion. They saw all of life revolve around him. And so Jezebel, when she came down and ascended to power in marrying Ahab, she wanted to not only, uh, she didn't want to just bring in another religion and worship of Baal. She wanted to eradicate worship of Yahweh. She wanted to bail to, to, to replace Yahweh, to replace worship of the one true God. And that's why in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, we see that she actually goes and looks for any prophet of God, the one true God, and kills him. She went on a, a rampage trying to eliminate them because Ahab and Jezebel wanted to erase even the memory of God from Israel. And that's why they became the most wicked and did the most evil things that had been done to that point. So things were not good. And then along comes this man named Elijah. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah, a man whose name means my God is Yahweh, comes along. And there's not much description given about him, just where he came from and what he said to Ahab. And I find that interesting because Elijah is probably one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. Right? In fact, he's the one who performed the first miracle recorded in Scripture of raising someone from the dead. Elijah is the one who stood alone for God at the great battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Not Caramel. Carmel. I get hungry every time I read that passage, right? He's one of only two people in all history as recorded in Scripture that did not physically die. He was with Moses at the transfiguration. And many consider that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. So this man, Elijah, is it's a big deal. But the author at this point doesn't think it's that important to mention all these things about Elijah or to build him up. Just simply to say, hey, a man named Elijah from Tishbe came along, told Ahab, you've blown it, you're in sin, there'll be no more rain. You will experience a drought. Now, why do you think God chose a drought? Let's think about this a minute. What is that? There's a demon in the equipment over here. Somebody exercise it. Anyway, I'll just talk louder. How's that? Okay. Now, why would God send a drought? Why do you think? Because he could have sent anything, right? In fact, Deuteronomy eleven seventeen, he says he does send droughts. And uh, for, for when the people, if they forsake God, that would be one consequence. But he could have brought an earthquake. He could have brought an invading nation into the region as he had done before and will do later. He could have uh, brought any manner of disease or plague or war. But God chooses to withhold rain. Why do you think that is? Yeah. There you go. Baal is the God of rain. So by God withholding rain, what is God saying? And remember, Jezebel's dad, his name meant Baal is alive. God brings a prophet named Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh. What's God telling them here? Only God is alive. Baal is dead. You want rain from Baal? If he's where you think rain comes from, fine. I'll let him take care of it. So God did. And because Baal is a false god, there no rain came. 
was a judgment upon the people to show them the clear message. Baal is not alive. The only true God is Yahweh. Well, this drought's going to go on for about three and a half years. Bringing great, what? What comes as a result of drought? When there's no rain, we have famine, right? Well, that's what happens. So God has Elijah hide out in a brook in the Jordan River where he would be provided for. Look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, the Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of that brook. And I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. He would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, I don't think God has Elijah and puts him in seclusion for Elijah's protection, right? Because God can protect him anywhere, can he? I mean, he protected three men in a fire. So he could easily protect Elijah. I think what's really happening here is another form of God's judgment. Elijah was a prophet of God. What do prophets do? They speak the word of God to the people, right? So by God removing this man of God who spoke the word of God to the people and taking him away, what is he in effect doing? Telling the people. You're refusing to listen to me. I'm going to refuse to speak to you. And of all the judgments God could have brought, you know, drought is bad enough, but of all the judgments he could have brought, to be silent is the worst. It's the scariest one to me. Because communication without it cuts off the relationship, doesn't it? His word brings life. His word brings hope. His word brings guidance. And God said, you will have none of it. My prophet will not dwell among you. I'm so thankful God has not made that decision in our land. We deserve it just as much as these people did. But praise the Lord, we have His Word. Praise the Lord, He does speak to us. Amen? So here's Elijah. He's he's hiding out. And it's interesting how God provides for him. He gets water from the brook that's running alongside. but, But how did the food come to him? He's ravens, right? Birds. But not just any bird, a raven. Now, if any of you have watched ravens, these birds are known for being greedy and selfish, right? They hoard food. They don't give it away. They don't see them at a, you know, around a, a, a piece of carry and say, hey, come on in, you want some? Yeah, no problem. Here, take a spot. No, they, they're selfish. And yet this is the kind of bird that God chooses to bring food and, and to bring meat and bread to Elijah. Now, why did God do that? Why would he use such a bird? You know what? I have no idea. (laughs) But he did. Okay, rabbit trail. Sorry. Let's get back to verse 7. After a year or so, Elijah himself suffers from the curse in which he brought, uh, that God brought through him to the land. The brook dries up. So he no longer has a source of water. And again, I ask myself, why did God let this happen? Because you got to, as you're going through the Old Testament, particularly narratives, you need to be asking lots of why questions. Because the author in these narratives has chosen specific stories and specific things about them to include. Because there's a, a message that he's trying to communicate. And we need to ask these things a lot. Why would God allow this thing? Why would the author include this description or this event? And the question we have to ask here is, why did God allow the brook to dry up? Did, did, he, did he run out of water supply? Of course not, right? God's sovereign. He he brought food through these ravens. Why did he do this? Well, this is where the answer to the question about how to care for orphans comes into play. The heart of our time together this morning is in the answer to that question. Look at verse 8 in 1 Kings 17. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Stop there for a second. Now, there's two things that should grab our attention from that verse. The first is Elijah's being sent to Zarephath. Zarephath, not a common city that we'd all know about necessarily. It's about 80, 90 miles away from where Elijah was at the time. Zarephath happens to be located in Sidon, outside of Israel. Now, who do we have, who do we remember that came from Sidon? Jezebel. That's interesting. Secondly, the thing that should grab our attention is the fact that not only is Elijah being sent to Baal worship land, but he's also being told that a widow there would provide for him. Now, widow and provide don't go in the same sentence, right? It's the widows who were in need, the widows who needed to be provided for. So the fact that God was going to send Elijah 80 plus miles away for a widow to care for, for him is somewhat odd, somewhat strange. Look at verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. So Elijah meets his widow. And we come to find out that this woman has a young son. We know he's young because later it talks about she holds him in her arms. So she has this young son. And what does Elijah find her doing as he comes to the city of Zarephath? What's she doing? She's gathering sticks, right? Why? Build a fire. Why? To cook her last meal. Cook her last meal. It doesn't get more desperate than her situation. She was in a place where her food was gone. Her hope was gone. Her will to live was gone. So why does Elijah get sent by God to a Gentile land to have a single mother care for him? Why didn't God send Elijah to some wealthy guy? Okay, I get it. Maybe he's sending him out of the land of Israel to Jezebel's territory in order to make a point. But why not to a a person that could readily provide for him? Why this widow? Why this widow with an orphan? Look at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go. Do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted. Nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So why did God allow the brook to dry up? Why did he direct Elijah to this place? Part of it was that it would demonstrate that God is the one in power, that God could take care of a widow in Baal's homeland when Baal could not. Part of it was a sign of judgment that that Elijah was to leave the people of Israel. Jesus references that in Luke 4. But that's not everything here. That's not all we're meant to see here. Because God sends him specifically to this woman's house. 
And he does so not only because of his sovereignty, not only because of his justice, but also because of his kindness. This poor woman who had once almost was out of food completely now had food in abundance. This woman who had no husband to provide for her was now in a place that she could provide for another. This woman who had no protection now had the great prophet Elijah under her roof. And you didn't mess with him. And this woman who lived in the darkness of Baal worship was sent one of the godliest men in Israel to live under her care. God's mercy is on display here, brothers and sisters. And things are going pretty well for her until another tragedy strikes. Look at verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house. Put yourself in this room and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word that is of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now, on the surface, this might seem like a cruel series of events. Again, why would God allow her son to die? Why take this woman through such pain and agony? A a tragic event, right? The most difficult to endure, losing a child. And to have him die. Was God just trying to show that he had power over life when he raised him from the dead through Elijah? That that Baal could not give life, but, but God can. Yes, I think that's part of what we should see here. But also, too, there's more. Because why include this whole dialogue between the woman and Elijah? Why not just simply have Elijah heal her son? And that'd be the end of the story. But he has this dialogue between them. You see, I think the other reason that we're meant to see here is seen in the woman's confession in verse 24. Because remember, in verse 18, she says that he called him a man of God, right? What did she say in verse 24? Now I know that you are a man of God, that... Everything you have told me is true. She recognized that this was truly a man from Yahweh, that Yahweh was real, that Yahweh existed, that Yahweh sent this man, and that everything this man had said to her while the time he was living with her was true. You see, God is showing his kindness here by taking this woman where she would never want to go because it was what she had to experience or she would have never seen what he wanted her to see. This woman came to faith. Through this experience. Now I know, I believe, I've experienced that you are a man sent by God, and every word you've spoken to me is truth. Amazing. Amazing. By losing her little boy and gaining him back, she was led to trust in the Lord. God brought Elijah to this woman's house to care for her and more than just food. 
And the widow of Zarephath isn't the only example. In fact, I want you to turn ahead to 2 Kings 4. Let's jump about 20 years into the future from this point in time. And we're going to come across a time period in Israel where Ahab's second son, Jehoram, is now king. Not much has changed in Israel. They were still steeped in idol worship and sin. Elijah, uh, Elijah is gone. He has taken that uh, flaming cab ride to heaven, so he's no longer with them. And Elisha is in his place. And in 2 Kings 3, we read about Israel's war with Moab, again describing this conflict during the time of Israel. And then we're introduced to another widow, beginning in 2 Kings 4, starting in verse 1. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Stop there a moment. So here comes Elisha. He meets up as a widow and she has two sons. And her husband, who had been part of this group called the Sons of the Prophets, which we could probably compare to modern day seminarians. They are listed often in Kings. We read about them and they were given instruction and direction by prophets such as Elisha and Elijah. So we learn that one of these men had died. And as is the case for many seminary students, they had a lot of debt. And so this poor woman was not only had the loss of her husband, now she was shackled with, with great debt. And the problem was an unscrupulous man who either ignored the scripture or didn't care about it or didn't know about it. He comes along and he takes advantage of her and says, sorry, sorry, lady, you got to pay up. No money? I'm taking your boys. They're going to be my slaves. So here's a, a woman in a desperate situation, right? Just like the widow of Zarephath, this woman too was at the bottom. She had no husband, no income, no food, nearly homeless. And now her two sons were about to be taken away from her. Look at verse 2. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what, what, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow, large, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her and she poured. And it came about that when the vessels were full, then she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons can live on the rest. How about that? I know some people read this story and go, man, why didn't they get some more jars? She could have made a fortune. But seriously, I mean, step back from the story a minute. If we were to have read everything from 1 Kings 17 to this point, we would have been reading about the exchange of kings. There was another king, Ahab's first son, Amaziah, who was inserted in there. We didn't read about him, but then Jehoram comes and is talking about uh, these two kings, talking about when Elijah was taken to heaven and Elisha became the next prophet, uh, the war between Israel and Moab. We're getting these huge, important national events, key figures in the history of Israel. And then all of a sudden, here in 2 Kings 4, the author plops the story in here about this widow who had lost her husband and was on the verge of losing everything, including her children. What's this doing here? Why did the author break away from the flow of what he was talking about on these national issues with the country of Israel to give us 
this story? Why did, why did God deem it important enough to put in his word? Was it simply to, to show that Elisha too was a man of God who could perform many miracles? Yes, that's part of it. We'll see several more after this section. But again, he includes this specific story in particular. Because not only are we meant to see that Elisha is indeed the next prophet, the man of God following Elijah, but we're also meant to see again that God cares, that he's concerned for the widow and the fatherless, that he hears the cry of those who are afflicted. Right? You see, these, these two women that we've talked about were vulnerable, the most vulnerable. They are... Children had no father. They were desperate. They had no one coming to their aid. No one seemed to notice them, right? They had given up. They had lost hope. No one showed any care and concern, but God did. God came. God saw their condition. And indeed, he showed that he is a father to the fatherless. And this brings us now to consider, how does this apply to us? What do we do with this? Has God changed in his concern for orphans and widows? No, he hasn't. Was he just concerned for those who were fatherless in the land of Israel? No. You know, he could have directly cared for these widows, right? He he didn't need anyone to come along. He could have directly provided for them and given to them. but, But he does it through Elijah and Elisha. And again, that shows us that God chooses people to meet needs. That his means is to work through his people. Jesus said in Luke 6.35 that we are to be kind because God is kind. That we are to be merciful and show mercy because God is merciful. Ephesians 5.1, we spent several weeks on that passage. You are to be, we are to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, right? Walk in love. Love specifically toward the body of Christ, but also to demonstrate a heart of concern and compassion particularly for those in need. God wants us to act like Him. Like that song said, He does want us to be His hands and His feet and His eyes. And if we say we love God, then what matters to Him will matter to us. What He cares about, we will care about. What is concerning for Him will bring concern to us, right? I mean, that's why James can say it with such conviction. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Genuine Christianity, true worship of God, true love for Him will visit or care for orphans and widows in their distress. You know, we have several single mothers here in our body who because of various circumstances and situations are without a husband to provide for them and care for them. We have fatherless children here. Some cases the father is still alive, but he has chosen to abdicate. He has chosen to be absent from helping and caring for his family. So in effect, these are widows and orphans. How are you coming alongside these single moms to help? These women have a huge challenge. Remember, God designed women to nurture and to care. And so to place upon them the additional burden of providing and shepherding is huge. It's a huge burden. These women are first to be mothers. And we need to look for ways to come alongside them financially or, or practically doing babysitting for them or doing work projects around their house, shopping for food or clothing for them, providing meals, giving rides, fixing their vehicle, helping to give spiritual instruction to their children. You Sunday school teachers and youth staff need to be specifically aware and sensitive 
to kids in this situation. And you know what? I know many of these women don't want to be a burden. And they won't ask. They don't want to be a burden to us. But we need to take the initiative. And we need to offer to help, right? And don't take no for an answer. Ladies, if you're in this circumstance, let the body of Christ come alongside and help you. But we need to be sensitive to our sisters here in need. And there are needs for the fatherless, not only here in this congregation, but there's a ministry outside of the walls of this church to the fatherless. Um, The latest statistics I could come across is that 2010, there were some 424,000 children in foster care in our country. Almost half a million kids. 60,000 of them in California. About half of them in our own county. It's amazing. Most of the kids don't have much hope at all. Of about the 250,000 kids who exit the foster care system each year, about half of them will not return home. Half of them will not be reunited with their parents. The remainder... The remainder either end up living with relatives, some get adopted, the rest are simply let out of the system at 18 years old. The system calls it being emancipated, but it really isn't an emancipation. They aren't really free. 40% of those who are emancipated don't finish high school. 3%, only 3% go to college. Over half of them have no job. 25% of them become homeless immediately, and over half of them end up being homeless within 18 months. 25% of the young men who are emancipated from the foster care system end up in jail. 30% of the young women end up having children before they're 21, most of them out of wedlock. And as a matter of fact, the parents of those, uh, if if you were in foster care and then you had children, you have a two times a chance that those children will be taken into foster care as well. You know, to to the world, brothers and sisters, these are just statistics. But to God, they are names. Young men and young women abused by parents, neglected, forgotten, living with strangers they don't even know, being taken advantage of in horrific ways, human trafficking, and uh, I, can't, I can't even mention the things that are done to many of these kids. It is horrific. Then they're thrown under the streets. How would you feel? These kids need to see Christ somehow. They need to experience genuine love. They, they need to not cringe when they hear God described as a father because they think about their father left them or abandoned them or abused them. They need to, to see and hear the truth and, and see it lived out that, that God is a kind father. He's the only genuine loving father. They need to know that there is something and someone worth living for. And who's going to show that to them? Who is going to be their advocate? God's call to care for the fatherless wasn't just an Old Testament sentiment for the people of Israel. No, James makes it clear that we Christians who say that we love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are called to visit, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress. And you know, there there are many social workers that are are trying to help. My wife and I came across a number of them when we were doing foster care. And, you know, there are many that are trying to help. Right, Tim? I mean, you've probably interacted with some. But they're so overwhelmed. There's so many kids. And the the system that you have to wade through is just unbelievable. And their hands are tied often. 
We need to be an influence. We need to be the light of the world. We are called that, right? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose light should be shining through us. You know, as John David mentioned, that many of the references that are given of widows and orphans in the Old Testament are connected in context with what God has done for us, how He has redeemed us. That passage I read in Deuteronomy 24, he said, you were to care for the orphan and widows because remember, you were slaves in Egypt. You remember what that felt like? Do you remember how it was to be abandoned and abused? So you need to care just as I have cared for you. We've been shown the love of God and and we need to express that. We need to give God a voice, particularly to these children. So saints, I would ask that you prayerfully consider how you can be that voice. How you can be the hands and feet of God. How you can bring a light to a very dark place. And I'm so thankful to God for the many families, I think over 10 families here in our body who have gone down that road to adopt, to provide foster care. Praise God for them. Praise God that they have made the sacrifice to do that. But brothers and sisters, there's still over 60,000 kids in our state. There's still nearly 30,000 of them that won't go back home. Would you pray and just ask the Lord, just be open and ask the Lord, if, if this is something you've called me to do, place that burden on my heart and that desire. And if you can't adopt, maybe to consider foster care, either short-term or long-term to provide. And it is hard. This is something you need to think through. It is difficult. My wife and I got just a, a little taste of experiencing the system. But you've, if you know anyone in this church who's gone through it, it, it is not easy. It's not easy. You, you have children who've been through horrific things who now come into your home and, and feel out of place and have never really experienced what it's like to be loved. And, and you're trying, but, but they've got all these issues and concerns and, and habits and, and ways they've tried to deal with life up to that point. It's not easy. And then wading through all the, the government paperwork and, and all the system and dealing with insurance and all these things. Maybe I should stop. Nobody's going to respond now. It is a labor of love. It is a mission. It's a calling. It's not just all, we want more kids. Why don't we go adopt one? No, the point is, is that these are orphans in in distress. We need to visit them and care for them. Now, I know for for some of us, doing foster care or adoption is just not something that's possible at this point. But we can sure help others who are trying that, can't we? We can come alongside them. The many families in our church alone who are going down this road or considering going down this road, they need help. All the things I just described to you and how difficult it is, they could sure use a hand if, you know, an offer for you to come by and say, can I babysit your kids while you go through something like that? Or can I come by and help? Can I get you some groceries? Can I provide? Is there any money that you need to, to help with this? Uh, diapers would certainly help. Those are expensive. Many practical ways. When they're caring for these kids as well, you can offer to, hey, can I watch them for a night so you and you and your spouse can go spend some time together? Or hey, do you mind if I take them to the park or bring, bring a meal? Can I take them out to McDonald's or something? Can I take them to Disneyland? How about that? I think they'd really appreciate that. You know, don't just leave it to these families to show the love of Christ. We need to show as a body. Care for these kids. Care for these orphans. Or if there's another option, too, as well, to donate time or money, not only to to the parents, but also to organizations that are trying to do good in this area. Particularly, uh, Olive Crest is one that we have worked uh, with for a number of years now, and they try to help place kids in good homes. In fact, uh, there's going to be a table um, out front 
I think Maureen Learn is going to be at that. You can go, and if you have any questions, again, maybe foster care or adoption, you're not sure about it, but ask questions about it, or, or maybe other ways, of, how can I help? I don't know that I can provide foster care, but what are some other things I can do? And they will provide you some great practical ways to come alongside and visit orphans in their distress. Also, too, if uh, any of you, and I see a few of you out there who have gone through the adoption process, if you could make yourself available maybe at that table for a little bit. And so others that come, if they have questions, thoughts, you can express from your own experience things that you feel would be helpful. Also next Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. at Jeff and Marine Learned's house, there will be an open house to, again, talk about how you can come alongside if you have any questions about foster care or adoption. Uh, Olive Crest will be there as well to give information if you want to explore that. The Learned's have adopted four kids themselves, so they have some experience in this area that they can offer. And I, and I was told there's going to be child care and dessert. So you can just go there for that at least. <laughs> just kidding, no. But, but go, 2 to 4 next Sunday. But all of us can faithfully commit to pray, can't we? Can't we? We can pray for them. We can pray for God to move in the hearts of our church, for God to move in the hearts of believers in this community to visit orphans and widows in their distress. You know, if every church in California took in four foster kids, we would clean out the system. If every church in California adopted two children each year, we would empty the system. There would be no kids going out on the street. If each church adopted eight kids each year, if every church in California adopted eight kids, we would clean out the system for the nation. Just eight children, eight kids. We we can make an impact. We can make a difference. We can be the hands and feet of God. We can help those who are most vulnerable, who are most prey to abusers and criminals. We can keep these kids from becoming a statistic. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You know, it's no accident that James says here, in the sight of our God and Father. He's drawing attention to that fact to remind us, isn't he, of what we've been looking at in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.5 says that he's predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're of God's house. You know why adoption is near to the heart of God? Because God is the great adopter. He didn't just place us in foster care. Oh, this guy's got a problem. I'll stick him over here. He made us his sons and his daughters. Romans 8, 14, right, declares you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And if you look at how that word is used, Abba, Father, in the scriptures, it wasn't this little baby, oh, daddy. It was a person crying out, dad, help me. Help me out of this. I'm in desperate need. And God says, I will, I will save you out of that plight. It's amazing. You and I were spiritual uh, orphans, weren't we? We were trapped in sin. We were trapped in the world. We were trapped in allegiance to Satan. And as spiritual orphans, we were a statistic too. Because 100% of spiritual orphans who die without God end up in hell. 
because of their sin. And there may be some this morning who are in that boat. You are a spiritual orphan. You have not confessed your sins to God. You have not admitted to Him that you have rebelled against Him, that, that you deserve His just punishment for that sin. The Bible says, though, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not sitting there going, hey, I, can't, I can't wait till that guy dies. I'm going to take care of him. So see, He doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but He will rightly punish sin. He will justly deal with all rebellion, with any who have rejected His Son. So ask God for forgiveness. Ask Him to grant you repentance from your sin. Ask Him to give you faith to believe, to trust in Him, to be as that woman that says, now I know everything that the Word of God says is truth. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you'll be what? Saved, right? And Jesus died on the cross not only to save you from hell, not only to save you from the power and consequences of sin, not only to redeem you and justify you before God, but Jesus also was nailed to that cross so that you could become a child, a beloved son or daughter. Jesus died so the Father could adopt you. So give up your sin if you're in that circumstance. Give up trying to please God. Give up trying to think, well, I'll do enough good so that God's happy with me doesn't work that way. One sin, one sin puts us in hell. Any violation, any rejection, rebellion against the God who made you, the God who, who, who made and created you to worship Him, He will judge. But His desire, He freely offers forgiveness to any who would repent and believe. And there's no greater father, is there? No greater parent. There's no one, no one who will love you more. And that's the message. We need to remind ourselves of that. It's a message that we need to tell a lost world. And it's a message that especially those who are orphans in this world need to hear. That there is a father who loves them. Who wants to adopt them. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. <laughs> Even to those who believe in his name. What a remarkable gift to be adopted. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for our sins so that we may have the opportunity through your blood to be cleansed, to be forgiven, and to be made a child of the Father. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you for predestining us to adoptions as sons. And I pray, Lord, that any here who... Lord, you've impressed upon them that they are still a spiritual orphan, that they do not have you as their father, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring desire to repentance. Lord, I pray for we who do know you, that you would place a burden on our hearts, Lord, to live out what you've called us, what you've commanded us to do, to be those who show care and concern, especially for the widow and the orphan. Lord, just give us ways that we can do that. Give us ways as a church that we can be a light to so many in need. Even here in our own county, Lord, so many. We pray these things in the name of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.